thank you uh, for inviting me to speak with you. I want to uh, particularly express my thanks to the conference organizers that uh, Jeff alluded to, particularly Anat Admati. Uh, this is a, a critical topic, uh, vitally important one, I think. Uh, this also uh, provides uh, uh, us all with a well-timed and welcome respite from uh, election coverage. Uh, so I hope you're enjoying that, going to enjoy that today. The title of today's conference poses a question of vital importance, I think, for the future health and safety of our financial system. Have we ended the era of institutions that are deemed too big to fail? Unfortunately, I believe we have not. Despite myriad legislative and regulatory responses to the crisis, such as the Dodd-Frank Act of 2010 and the Third Basel Accord of 2011, we have so far failed to address a fundamental problem at the heart of the financial crisis of 2007 and 2008. That problem, as I'll discuss in more detail in my remarks, is that market participants have come to expect government support when large financial institutions become distressed. Expectations of such interventions distorted the incentives faced by those institutions and their counterparties and led to excessively fragile financial structures prior to the crisis. Capital ratios were low. The firms were vulnerable to a loss of wholesale funding. As the crisis unfolded, multiple discretionary interventions reinforced expectations of government support and further blunted incentives uh, to prepare for potential turmoil to come. Ambiguity about the scope of future support that might be forthcoming destabilized market expectations and added unnecessary volatility. Strengthening regulatory restraints on risk-taking and improving the quantity and quality of capital positions are important measures to reduce the likelihood of distress. By themselves, though, I believe these are likely to be insufficient. I will argue that if we want to prevent similar financial crises in the future and truly solve uh, the problem of institutions that seem to be too big to fail, we must realign the incentives of financial market participants. That requires a credible commitment, I believe, on the part of policymakers and regulators to end the reliance on government backstops. Before I discuss how we can achieve that uh, a commitment, however, I should note that the views expressed are my own and not necessarily the views <clears throat> of my other colleagues in the Federal Reserve System. So to begin, let's be clear about the problem we're trying to solve. The perception that some institutions are too big to fail results from two mutually reinforcing conditions that seriously distort incentives of financial market participants to monitor and control risk. First, creditors of some financial institutions feel protected by an implicit government commitment of support should the institution become financially troubled. And second, policymakers often feel compelled to provide such support to certain financial institutions to insulate, insulate creditors from losses. The way the second condition reinforces the first one should be clear. Instances of government intervention bolster creditors' expectations of support and thereby dampen incentives to contain risk-taking. That promotes financial firms of greater size, complexity, and interconnectedness, and it also encourages greater leverage and more reliance on short-term funding. In my view, excessive fragility is not an inherent feature of modern financial market arrangements. Instead, financial instability should be seen primarily as a consequence of the moral hazard effect of official intervention. 
Creditor expectations of support, in turn, often compel policymakers to intervene in the event of distress, since disappointing those expectations by withholding support are likely to provoke a sudden and turbulent readjustment of investor beliefs regarding their likelihood of receiving support for other similarly situated firms. At such times, concerns about exacerbating moral hazard uh, take a back seat in policymakers' minds uh, to the urgently felt need to stem the volatility that would result from disappointed expectations. Perceived guarantees thus encourage fragility, which induces intervention, which encourages further fragility. The ultimate result of this cycle is taxpayer-funded subsidies to financial firms that are widely viewed as deeply unfair. <clears throat> what we have is a fundamental flaw in the relationship uh, between the government and the financial sector, and I think it results from the inability or unwillingness uh, to find a way to forego intervention in crises, in essence a classic commitment problem. The impact of this problem is growing. At the end of 1999, the government safety net, including both the implicit support I just outlined and explicit support provided by programs such as deposit insurance and uh, pension guarantees, covered 45% of financial sector liabilities in the United States, according to Richmond Fed researchers. By the end of 2011, that number had grown to 57%, uh, about the same size it was at the end of 2009, despite the many new regulations we've put in place in, since the crisis. So how did we get here? Uh, we've arrived at this point, if I may be blunt, because of politics. Between 1929 and 1933, one-third of the nation's roughly 25,000 banks failed Entire states declared bank holidays, and a nationwide bank holiday was declared in March 1933. The banking system was highly fragmented, 25,000 banks. Now, we now have less than 7,000. Um, it was highly fragmented at that time because of laws that restricted branching um, and uh, competition between banks. And that meant that banks were unable to diversify risks across regions or to head off runs by moving funds between different branches. One popular account of the wave of bank failures holds that uh, the crisis was caused by self-fulfilling depositor runs. Uh, fearing failure, people rushed to withdraw their funds, thus ensuring that failure actually occurred. Uh, but I think modern scholarship points in a different direction, um, that the crisis um, in 2933 was actually driven by fundamental shocks to the, insolvency of the, to the solvency of the banking system. And these shocks were exacerbated by the fragmented nature of banking back then. The legislative response to the failures, however, was the Glass-Steagall Act of 1933, which among other provisions established the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. Deposit insurance was highly controversial at the time. Many policymakers, including President Roosevelt and Senator Carter Glass, an architect of the Federal Reserve System, which, by the way, is celebrating its centennial this year, uh, were wary of the inherent risk-taking risk incentives, and they were mindful of many failed state deposit insurance schemes, um, and, and so expressed opposition to this um, initially. But the unit banking system was popular and with politically influential populist and agrarian groups in our country, and these forces successfully lobbied uh, instead for a system of government deposit uh, government-provided deposit insurance that would preserve the viability of small local banks by protecting their depositors. 
Over time, government protection spread beyond insured bank depositors. Beginning in the early 1970s, the FDIC and the Federal Reserve began intervening in ways that protected uninsured creditors of large financial institutions. Penn Central, Bank of the Commonwealth, Franklin National Bank, Continental Illinois, among others, all benefited from government support. In some cases, the FDIC provided funds to arrange mergers that allowed uninsured depositors to avoid losses. In other cases, the Fed lent on terms that were unavailable in the open market. And at times, Fed lending allowed uninsured creditors to withdraw their funds while closure was delayed, thereby increasing losses to the FDIC. Fast forward, I'm sure this audience is quite familiar with the dramatic events of 2007 and 2008, but I'd like to highlight just a couple of key moments uh, in the narrative. In 2007, estimates of the losses likely to be experienced on subprime mortgages uh, rose significantly. This caused investors to revise their assessments of financial entities deemed likely to be exposed to those losses, most notably certain off-balance sheet funding vehicles. As a consequence, the credit terms available to these entities deteriorated, the risk premia on their obligations in wholesale funding markets rose, and the maturity of the obligations they were able to issue uh, was sharply reduced. In August of 2007, the Federal Open Market Committee took its first step in response to the tumult in financial markets by lowering the interest rate charged on discount window loans to banks and by undertaking a, a, a campaign to encourage banks to borrow. Then in 2000, December 2007, in response to rising interest rates in interbank lending markets, the Fed launched the term auction facility to provide loans to depository institutions. The guiding principle behind these actions and others that follow were that credit markets were somehow malfunctioning and that the remedy was additional central bank lending. Arguably, however, market participants inferred that the Fed was standing by, again ready to rescue creditors of financial institutions that showed signs of distress, which actually occurred the following spring when the New York Fed helped finance the purchase of Bear Stearns by J.P. Morgan. These actions are likely to have reduced the incentives of other large financial institutions, such as Lehman Brothers, to strengthen their positions by raising additional equity or reducing their reliance on short-term funding. Capital markets were clearly open for the large financial institutions uh, up until the fall of 2008, as demonstrated by the equity issuance that did occur during that time frame. But not enough new capital was raised. Apparently, the costliness of shareholder dilution made it more attractive for large financial institutions to rely instead on the implied backstop of government support. Policymakers were certainly aware that their actions might exacerbate moral hazard. And certainly, as we can all understand, a bias against inaction when faced with an unknown and potentially grave outcome. But the distortion in banks' risk-taking incentives was viewed as a long-run issue to trade off against the immediate value of cushioning an imminent blow to financial market functioning. Because financial markets uh, crises are relatively infrequent, it was thought, the incentive distortion would only affect outcomes in the relatively distant future, the next business cycle down the road, for example. And the idea was that would leave policymakers with sufficient time uh, to contain moral hazard effects through stiffer regulation. But the episode we've been through tells a different story. It wasn't just some distant future crisis that was affected by the precedents being set. It was the next chapter in the current crisis. 
Each new move to expand institutions' use of Fed lending also had the effect of increasing expectations of official support in the months ahead. The idea that public sector backstops are a necessity is often motivated more broadly by theoretical models based on multiple equilibria or market segmentation in which outcomes are inherently unstable or suboptimal in the absence of government support. I have not find, found these models terribly persuasive as accounts of the financial market phenomena we grappled with at various points during the crisis because the critical frictions on which these theories are based seem at odds with observation. More broadly, the thesis that financial market instability is inherent rather than induced by poor policies must confront the fact that instances of instability are quite unevenly distributed across different countries and different regulatory regimes. If financial fragility were an inherent feature of financial markets, financial panics would be far more ubiquitous, and that's not what we see. Let me turn now to how policymakers responded once the immediate crisis had passed. In the United States, the chief legislative response was the Dodd-Frank Act of 2010, which purports to end too big to fail once and for all. The act provides for enhanced supervision of large financial firms via stronger capital and liquidity requirements, periodic stress testing, counterparty credit limits, and risk management requirements, among uh, other measures. U.S. banking regulators have also adopted most of the increased capital requirements recommended by the Basel III International Regulatory Framework. Greater capital uh, buffer requirements and measures to beef up ex-ante constraints on risk-taking are important, but as I said, they're not infallible. New opportunities for risk-taking will always arise as financial markets and economies evolve, and it is asking too much, I believe, to expect our frontline supervisors to forever substitute for well-aligned market incentives. Moreover, strong restraints on risk-taking increase the incentive for market participants to find a way to operate outside the regulated sector. The regulatory bypass that this gives rise to is what's come to be called the shadow banking system, a topic we're going to hear more about in uh, today's conference. Shadow banking arrangements played a major role in the financial crisis. Paradoxically, some of those arrangements were the result of past financial regulations intended to prevent crises. Expanding regulation to chase down fragility wherever it appears is not a promising strategy. The Dodd-Frank Act also created a new mechanism to resolve large financial uh, firms that become distressed in spite of enhanced supervision. Title II of the Act uh, creates the Orderly Liquidation Authority, or OLA as it's called, which gives the FDIC the ability, with the agreement of other financial regulators, to take a firm into receivership. The FDIC is also able to borrow funds from the U.S. Treasury to make payments to creditors of failed firms or to guarantee the liabilities of the failed firm. Funds are to be repaid from recoveries on the assets of the firm or from assessments on the largest, most complex financial companies. While the FDIC must pay creditors at least what they would have received in a liquidation of the firm, the Act does give the FDIC broad discretion to pay some creditors more than bankruptcy would allow. Moreover, the ability to inject funds borrowed from the Treasury allows the FDIC to immediately pay off creditors whose claims would otherwise be subject to bankruptcy proceedings. With this in place, short-term creditors are likely to be believe that they will benefit from the FDIC's discretion, causing them to continue to pay insufficient attention to risk and to invest in financial funding, fragile financial uh, funding arrangements. 
if expectations for support of creditors of financially distressed institutions were widespread, regulators are likely to feel forced, again, to provide support to these short-term creditors to avoid the turbulence of dis disappointing market expectations. Rather than ending too big to fail, this would replicate the two mutually reinforcing expectations uh, that I described as defining it. Achieving financial stability requires, in my view, two new mutually reinforcing conditions. The first is that creditors do not expect government support in the event of financial distress. If we can achieve that, private sector financial firms and their creditors will have an incentive to avoid financial fra uh, fragile financing arrangements, and will have an incentive to limit risk-taking and thereby reduce the pressure for government intervention. We could avoid relying solely on the vigilance of supervisors, and we could make more use of the discipline of competitive market forces. The second necessary condition is that policymakers actually do allow financial firms to fail without government support. If we can make unassisted failures manageable, uh, then policymakers could credibly commit to foregoing rescues and thereby improve private sector incentives, reinforcing that first condition. So how do we make unassisted failures manageable? I think we must rethink the notion that bankruptcy is not a viable option for large financial institutions. Bankruptcy offers many advantages, uh, the most obvious being a collective proceeding can mitigate uh, some of the common po pool problems that arise when individual creditors rush to pursue individual remedies. In addition, the deadweight costs of bankruptcy are borne exclusively by the firm's creditors and other stakeholders. The result is a collective interest, ex ante, in striking an appropriate balance between the probability of bankruptcy with its associated costs and the opportunity cost of measures designed to reduce the likelihood of bankruptcy. In particular, there would be a collective interest in avoiding ex ante contractual provisions that would make the firm excessively vulnerable to financial distress. These features of bankruptcy would seem to make it especially valuable in the financial sector where firms have a plethora of creditors uh, to coordinate with and where the decentralized pursuit of individual remedies, which is a run, that is to say runs, can damage a firm's value, even its ability to continue as a going concern. The Dodd-Frank Act lays out a path toward making bankruptcy workable for large financial firms. The Act requires these institutions to create resolution plans, uh, commonly referred to as living wills. These are detailed plans that explain how a financial institution could be wound down under U.S. bankruptcy laws without threatening the rest of the financial system or requiring government assistance. The plans explain how to disentangle the many different legal entities, sometime, sometimes numbering in the thousands for large firms that make up a, a typical financial uh, giant these days. Under the Dodd-Frank Act, uh, large banks and other systemically important firms are required to submit these plans on an annual basis for review by the Fed and the FDIC. Resolution planning uh, provides a structured approach for understanding what's likely to happen in the event that a large financial institution fails. In contrast, past crises uh, found policymakers with little or no preparatory work to draw on. In fact, the process has already proven valuable by giving firms a better and more detailed understanding of their legal structure, and many have used the process to reorganize themselves and eliminated many unwanted, unneeded uh, legal entities. Resolution planning, very wisely, does not take the current operating profile of a large financial firm as given. 
The current characteristics of these firms evolved, after all, in response to precedents set by regulators seeking to avoid bankruptcy. The Dodd-Frank Act provides that if the Federal Reserve and the FDIC jointly determined that a plan would not credibly facilitate an orderly resolution under the bankruptcy code, the firm is required to submit a revised plan to address identified deficiencies. If the Fed and the FDIC jointly determine that the revised plan does not remedy identified deficiencies, they can require more capital, uh, they can require increased liquidity, um, and they can restrict the growth activities or operations of the firm. And they can even require the firms to make divestitures. On August 5th, the Fed and the FDIC announced the completion of reviews of the second round of re resolution plans submitted in 2013 by the 11 banks that make up the first wave of filers. In a, the, in a joint announcement, the agencies noted the banks had made some significant improvements on their first submissions. But the agencies outlined several shortcomings, including, uh, to quote the announcement, the failure to make or even to identify the kinds of changes in firm structure and practices that would be necessary to enhance the prospects for orderly uh, resolution. So clearly, substantial work remains to be done. The needed alterations in the structure and operations of large financial firms will be unpopular since they were, are likely to involve reductions in reliance on short-term funding and the adoption of more easily severable uh, organizational structures for their subsidiaries and their parent companies. But I believe the changes that could result from living wills are feasible without sacrificing the inherent benefits that large financial firms provide to the economy. The credibility of living wills would be compromised, in my view, by continuing to depend on government backstops in order to avoid needed changes. In addition to requiring financial firms to adapt their operations to the bankruptcy code, we should also look for ways to better adapt the bankruptcy code to financial firms. Several bankruptcy reform proposals have been advanced, um, and these proposals strike me as compelling and worthy of serious consideration. A final step may be required before financial stability can be assured. Market participants must have well-anchored expectations uh, that government-funded rescues will not be forthcoming. Ideally, policymakers would act in a manner consistent with those expectations. But in turbulent times, as we've seen, it may be tempting to put seemingly urgent short-run considerations ahead of the goal of establishing and preserving a record of precedents that keep market expectations well-anchored. This is a particular danger for central banks whose independent balance sheets place their fiscal actions beyond the scope of the legislative appropriations process. Credible commitment to orderly, unassisted resolutions may require constraining or eliminating the government's ability to provide ad hoc rescues. This would mean repealing the Federal Reserve's remaining emergency lending powers and further restraining the Fed's ability to lend to failing institutions. And once robust credible and credible resolution plans are in place, we would be able to responsibly wind down the FDIC's orderly liquidation authority and related financing uh, mechanisms. So today, I've discussed with you what I view as the fundamental problem uh, that gives rise to institutions uh, deemed too big to fail, namely that market participants expect government support will be forthcoming if a large financial institution becomes distressed and at the same time, Policymakers believe that they must fulfill those expectations. To dismantle these expectations, uh, we must make resolution via the bankruptcy code a viable option for large, complex institutions. 
That means doing the hard work of making living wills credible. And it means policymakers and regulators must commit to using them. This is a daunting task, I will admit. But I find the alternative dismaying. The specter of an ever-increasing share of the financial sector effectively guaranteed by, by taxpayers. That outcome is not in the best interest of the, our country, I believe. So I think we owe it to our citizens to do whatever it takes to create a stable and resilient financial system. Thank you very much for your kind attention. Uh, I believe I am. I'll start with you. Oh, thank you. And I'm Rochelle Franklin and Marcy Brown. Ah, um, go dips. Was, was Who was? William Weitzel. Will Weitzel. Oh, wonderful. Yes. Magnificent man. Yes. Mine too. Um, so, so, the, uh, so deeply technical question, and, and yet it used the word Teflon, and uh, so um, impressive. Uh, I, so it, this is an important topic. Um, it's complicated. I didn't touch on it. Um, I, I think with regard to derivatives, their exemption from the automatic stay in bankruptcy that's accreted over the years is, I think, a, a, an important issue. And some of the bankruptcy reform proposals I've, I've talked, I, I alluded to, um, go some way towards rolling back a little bit of that exemption from the automatic stay. So they, they, they make these subject to a stay for a couple of days. Uh, um, and most of these are, are sort of designed around, um, you know, a, a resolution strategy that takes the derivative positions sort of wholesale over to a bridge company. Um, and uh, I think we need to do some more work to see if that's feasible, a viable strategy, if that makes sense. Um, personally, I think the safe harbors have, may have gone too far, and we may be, it might be worthwhile looking at rolling them back even further. Uh, Professor Mark Rowe, Harvard, has, has um, uh, you know, argues that, that, that these, these over-encourage the use of derivatives as uh, instruments relative to, um, you know, other contractual arrangements, and I, I think there's a... Um, a point to be made there. Um, so it, it's a very important topic. I, I can't say I see the, the answer, though. Down here on the, on the front row here? Hello, Paul.
Fascinating question. Yes. So, the, um, so cross-border, broadly speaking, cross-border issues along with liquidity and um, uh, derivatives are, are, are sort of the two or three main um, challenges uh, to resolution. So, uh, I see two possible paths, and I think both are being pursued um, to that problem. One is to uh, 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 achieve a measure of cooperation that induces regulatory authorities in a variety of jurisdictions to take a planetary view. Uh, I'm not sure that uh, how far that can go. I think there are obvious limits to that, given democratic accountability to their own citizens and the like. An alternative approach, um, which, broadly speaking, I'll use this term loosely, you might call severability, uh, is to make the um, relationships between um, a large firm's operations in different jurisdictions uh, easily um, compart sort of compartmentalized and self-supporting so that they, a resolution could go one way in one jurisdiction without Im impeding the ability of the firm to continue as an ongoing entity in another jurisdiction or even to be resolved a different way in a different jurisdiction. Now, this requires a lot of work, as, as you can imagine. Um, a lot of these firms share back office services like HR and IT, so uh, establishing contractual service arrangements to service agreements to formalize those so that they, when they go into bankruptcy, there's a clarity about what obligations are between affiliates is important. And then, of course, funding relationships between, um, between um, operations in different jurisdictions has to be clarified similarly. But in principle, that strikes me as... Uh, a path where, you know, in principle, I don't see, I don't see a, a you know, a, a big roadblock. I mean, it might be very difficult. It might be very time-consuming, but um, that to me seems more promising than, um, uh, you know, ex expecting um, uh, regulators to sort of transcend their, their jurisdictional uh, obligations. But this is a deep topic. I know you've thought a lot about it, um, so be interested to talk to you later about it. No, you've no doubt. Yes, ma'am. This is a really good question. I think it's pretty clear they're not credible this year. Um, and uh, now what the act says is that the FDIC and the Fed may jointly determine that they are not credible. We didn't do that. Um, but we didn't say we were happy with them. So um, it didn't trigger the, some legislation, so the, le the um the provisions of the act that say what happens after we make that determination. So a clock starts then. So it didn't start the clock on that. But we gave them a fairly, um, uh, a, a fairly comprehensive uh, set of instructions about what they needed to do to improve. Um, and so I think next year, as I, th I think the announcement makes clear, uh, we're, you know, they'll be evaluated against the extent of improvement they've made. They may, they may have fulfilled, they, 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 may, uh, they may fall short, they may not make enough improvement, they may make improvements, but we, they may still fall short. So what I, the way the guidance reads, it's essentially these are necessary, but I don't think we've, as a regulatory community, I don't think we've identified what's sufficient 
uh, for something to be for res resolution plans to be credible. And I think w until we do that, you know, there's the potential for further rounds of instructions about all right. Now that you've made those improvements, here's other things we need to address. And I think. So I think that's a, a, a symptom of just the fact that we're, we're all learning about this as we go as to what re credible resolution uh, looks like. Anat? Well, we're yeah, yeah. So that's so. There's two parts to that question. One is first, they're just what they know, and we're pushing them to learn more about themselves and more about their interconnectedness. And interconnectedness is actually, uh, you know, a reasonably strong part of the agenda. So they're measuring their interconnectedness. We're assessing the extent to which they understand how much the rest of the world depends on something they do. So, a, you know, a clearing bank would be a great example where. Um, you know, a whole market depends on their clearing activity. Now, the other part of that, um, though, there's, to, to a certain extent, this is analogous to business contingency planning. And uh, you can't just rely on assumptions. So, you know, we have, uh, we have plans for what happens if a train derails right next to us. Well, what happens if simultaneously, you know, there's a, uh, a, a bomb goes off out front? Well, you can't just assume only one happens. You have to be prepared for, robustly, for a range of potential circumstances. You just can't make assumptions. On the aisle here. Yeah, I, I don't know. That's a really interesting question. It's it's whether consequences for senior management are an important part of the crisis and how it played out. I can't, uh, I, you know, I haven't looked at the data on the extent to which senior management changes occurred less frequently or more frequently in this cycle than in previous ones, so I can't comment on that. I get a lot of questions about compensation, executive compensation. I view that as a symptom, right? It's going to reflect the board's sense of the incentives they want to provide senior management and and so you want to look at the incentives the whole organization's under that's going to drive what form executive compensation takes there's another one over here you know that's a good question as well and and in the FDIC and feds response they uh, they clearly flag that they're going to be working with the firms on enhancing uh, the visibility into those as, as you may know um, 
the, the part that's made public is on the order of a couple of dozen pages. Uh, the substantive part of it, sometimes just a few paragraphs, page or two long, describing kind of the strategy for filing and the like. Um, and uh, I, I think we could do much better and make the public disclosure about that robust. And I think that's critical to lining up incentives because a creditor ought to know how the company plans to treat them in bankruptcy. And presumably they can ask now. Uh, so on the on the last one first, um, uh, we are audited. The GAO can au audit virtually everything we do. The one carve out is for um, the, the sort of the short run tactical elements of our monetary policy decision making. Um, having having carved that out, we are accountable, and we do hold ourselves accountable. And Congress holds us accountable for the results of monetary policy through twice yearly reports to Congress. We could do that more often. We could step that up. But um, to ha there's this distinction between our choices in the short run and the consequences of the economy that are important and I think need to be maintained. I think the independence with which we can conduct policy in the short run, meeting to meeting, controlling our balance sheet and the like, has been essential and vital for the independence of monetary policy. And that's been very important to price stability since Volcker. Um, and so I, I, I'm against compromising that with um, bills that would give Congress, individual congressmen, the right to audit last week's FOMC meeting, for example. Um, having said that, that responsibility for monetary policy comes with important, important responsibility to not uh, extend the reach of our activities beyond, uh, not extend the use of our balance sheet beyond uh, just using it for monetary policy. FSOC, uh, you know, I, I, I don't have a reason to question uh, how, how well they're carrying out the charge Congress has given them. I haven't evaluated any of the, the bills proposing to change how they do things, so I don't really have much to say on that. Down here. I'm deeply skeptical about whether it makes sense to charge any public center, sector entity with responsibility for second-guessing market prices of financial instruments and intervening accordingly using tax, essentially taxpayer-backed funds. I'm deeply skeptical whether that's um, you know, a direction we want to go in. Um, so preparedness for interest rate risk is, has been a part of our uh, regulatory 
and supervisory practices for decades. Um, we um, obviously uh, have our supervisors take on board. They notice that interest rates are low. Uh, our, our supervisors are well aware that um, markets expect the Fed to raise interest rates next year. Uh, and um, well aware that um, in that kind of environment, it makes sense for um, banks to be um, especially diligent, uh, diligent about the, the effect of various, uh, and I emphasize the word various, interest rate scenarios on um, their balance sheet and their profitability. Um, so it's, it, it's a robust part of our supervisory practice right now. Yes, ma'am. Well, you know, as I said, this is this is one of the big challenges in uh, resolution planning. Um, current record for debtor in possession financing provided to a, a, a bankrupt firm is on the order of ten billion. Before the crisis, the liquidity needs of one of these large institutions would have dwarfed that by an order of magnitude, at least. Now, since the crisis, it's worth noting that um, the firms have built up very, very substantial liquidity buffers. Uh, a couple of hundred billion uh, in many cases. Moreover, they've significantly reduced their dependence on wholesale funding, short-term wholesale credit. Um, and I think, I think that's wise and I think that's useful. Um, and so um, we need, what we need to do, though, is work backwards from they can provide liquidity for themselves, for their ongoing operations in bankruptcy themselves from their own pre-planned resources um, to what they're structure needs to look like now. Now, in some cases, that might mean, well, no, you can't be as dependent as you are now. Um, it, it could require changes in their current liquidity profile right now. But I don't think we need to do more work to figure that out. Now, at the same time, uh, worldwide, there's been efforts to um, formalize and strengthen um, regulation of the liquidity profile of these firms that, uh, as they operate now. Uh, there's this um, liquidity coverage ratio. Uh, now there's going to be a net stable funding ratio that handles sort of longer-term things. These look at like the 30 days up to a failure. Can, can you survive a 30-day run, essentially? Um, and do you have enough liquidity to handle that? That's complementary to this effort, but whether, whether the, the living will liquidity um, robustness is, imposes a tougher constraint than those or not, I don't know. But... Um, certainly, it's pushing in the direction of structuring the liquidity with a very foresightful sense that they could survive uh, what, what might come, including a potential bankruptcy and the need to fund themselves in bankruptcy. Yes, 